Morning, Hillcrest. Uh, I'm Brian Stefile. I'm one of the elders here at Hillcrest, um, and it's my privilege to go through the text today. Um, and uh, someone pointed out to me that every time I'm up here, I kind of make fun of uh, David Bartosik, our, our lead pastor. Uh, and today is no different. So uh, uh, I'm up here for the second service, so that must mean it wasn't too bad. Um, but, uh, but if you're new to Hillcrest, welcome. Uh, come back next week when David Bartosik will be preaching, uh, and you are a professional pastor. Uh, but otherwise, you're stuck with me today. Uh, so uh, for those of you who are new or those who, with summer busyness, have been maybe not as uh, here as often just because of vacations or whatnot, I want to spend some time just kind of catching you up to what the context is uh, for today's um, passage. So uh, we've been looking through Luke for the last year, and I think we have another year to go in Luke. Uh, but Ryan, several weeks ago, uh, brought us through a passage looking at Luke chapter 11, where Jesus delivered a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees, the lawyers, the leaders of the day, um, uh, condemning them for their hypocrisy and for their wickedness and greed. And, and consequently, the Pharisees, we read in verse 54, were lying in wait for him to catch him into something he might say. And then in chapter 12, uh, Jesus warns the disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And then in chapter 13, Jesus talks about repentance and saying, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So Jesus is clearly making enemies with the religious leaders of the day. He's calling out their hypocrisy. Uh, and today's passage is really no different. Uh, and and um, he's calling out on the outside, the, the Pharisees appear religious and upright, but inside they're full of wickedness and greed. And so if we read, Now that you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And so today we're going to look at another interaction with Jesus and the religious leaders. And Luke was going to tell us the story of the interaction of three individuals today to encourage us to practice more mere living, which we'll talk about further, and reveal the compassion and the sovereignty of God through today's text. And so if, you'll, if you will turn to me uh, to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. It's on page 872 in the Blue Bibles provided, uh, or you can follow along. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, uh, he being Jesus. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at him, at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word, um, that we are biblically saturated. We want to find out what your word says today. Uh, and obviously your words are perfect, your words are holy, and let not my sinful nature come through in any way, Lord. For you are glorious and holy and perfect, Lord. And may you increase as always and I decrease. Thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. 
So the first person that we want to focus on is the healed woman. So here's a woman who for 18 years has been suffering. As we read in chapter in verse 11, he was teaching one of the synagogues, and behold, there's a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She could not fully straighten herself up. She had this forward flexion that made life difficult. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what the medical condition was, but he describes it. And based on his description, we kind of can know more than likely this was a medical condition called alkalosing spondylitis. Say that three times fast. Okay. What happens with this is there's a lot of inflammation and calcium will build up in the vertebrae and other joints and eventually if it gets bad enough, will fuse. And so you get this extreme forward flexion, what in the medical world we call kyphosis. Uh, if you think of pregnancy, it's lordosis where you're this way, um, but bent over. And so because that other joints are involved, you get soreness of the fingers and the toes because those joints are tender. The bones of the pelvis, because you're shifted forward, it's are shifted, and it's uncomfortable to sit down. It's hard to walk. It's hard to sit down. It's hard to stand. Chest pain and shortness of breath is really common as this curvature of the ribs and of the torso are bent over. There's anemia. There's fatigue. Leads to depression and anxiety of all these conditions. And lastly, there's inflammation of the eyes. And so bright lights are painful. There's obviously no sunglasses in Jesus' time. Right, this woman, life was hard already in the first century. This woman who was bent over, could never look up, looked at the ground all the time. And as a woman, who's even harder because she was considered a second-class citizen. She likely had this condition for half her life because it usually starts in, in the late teens. And behold, there's a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now the term here, disabling spirit, literally means when Luke phrases it, spirit of weakness or infirmity. What here is, where is this woman found? After 18 years of suffering, she's found in the synagogue. Her disabling spirit, her disabling illness doesn't prevent her from worshiping. And what's interesting, she's not there for healing. She doesn't approach Jesus. There's no mention of the woman's faith at all. It's Jesus that makes the first move. He calls her over. Jesus takes the initiative. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed of your disability. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Jesus calls her over. He has compassion on her for her affliction and heals her. Next, I want to shift to the second person of this scripture, the religious leader. Now, we don't know this religious leader's name. We don't know the woman's name for that matter. But we know he was the ruler of the synagogue. And after seeing this, he became indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. So he says to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, let's put ourselves in this religious leader's shoes. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees had this tremendous zeal for God and for the temple, that they were law followers. They were type A people, dot the I's and cross the T's. They tithed faithfully. They fasted twice a week. They tithed down to the penny, right? If I found a dime today, would I tithe the penny just to make sure I'm at my 10%? Right? This is what they would do. There's no rough estimation. 
Now, we don't know this religious leader's motivation. Right? Now, it's, it's wrong to paint a broad stroke and think that every Pharisee was a villain. Most were, many were. Some became religious leaders because of the prestige, the control, the power, the wealth. But some really wanted to devote their lives to God in the temple. We read in Scripture that there are several Pharisees that are speak, spoke highly of. We read about Nicodemus, who when he heard Jesus' teaching, knew that he was ignorant and needed to learn more. And so he went to Jesus and wanted to know more. He knew he didn't know everything. Albeit he went at night so no one else would see him. But he didn't, he didn't bluff his way through thinking he knew it all. And then we read in Acts, Gamaliel, who is a Pharisee of, of utter normal logic, just a very logical person. When the apostles were preaching about Jesus, the religious leaders were getting upset, and he said, if this is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, it will not. And you don't want to find yourself fighting against God. All right, so as we look at this passage, let's just automatically not put this individual as the villain. Let his, let his actions determine what's in his heart. So now this religious leader, he's not a hermit, right? He knows about Jesus. He's heard the stories. He knows that Jesus condemned the Pharisees when Ryan talked about last week or several weeks ago. He knows that he bested the lawyers, the people that love to argue. Jesus is this phenomenal order. He's a phenomenal teacher. He heals. He has the crowd at every word. So this religious leader, imagine the day, right? He sees Jesus walk into the synagogue. Oh, no. What's Jesus going to do? What's he, what trouble is he going to stir? He knows Jesus is a healer. And he sees Jesus catch the eye of the woman with echolos and spondylitis. And he calls her over. Oh, no, Jesus. Do you know it's the Sabbath? Don't heal on the Sabbath. Of course he knows it's the Sabbath. Oh, he just healed her. Right? And this, this anger burns inside because there's a perceived wrong, this righteous anger that, that Jesus broke the Sabbath. He becomes indignant. And this is not a word we often use, indignant. It means resentful, distressed, disturbed, hurt, offended. Now I have a great example of being indignant. I appreciate those of you who have served our military. Many of you are patriotic and fly the flag. Uh, I am one of those individuals that fly a flag. I'm right there with you guys. But one of the things that makes me indignant is when people fly a flag without a light on it. My righteous anger burns up inside. When we built our house, in my workout room in the basement, I have an eight-foot flag on the wall. Now, it's not required to light it because it's indoors. But I told my electrician, I want a light shining on that 24-7 because I tithe to the penny. Right? I know what's right. So it came to... My outside flag is a 25-foot flagpole. I wanted to go 30. My wife wouldn't let me. <laughs> they make 50 ones that I really wanted to get. But. So I knew when it came to the lighting, I had to do this lighting right. So I did some research, found out what kind of lights they put on governmental buildings for their flags. <laughs> so I told the electrician, These are the, this is the specifications I need, this is what I need. So many of you maybe you've drove by the house for months with just a flagpole and no flag because the lights were on back order. 
okay? He calls me up and he said, by the way, do you know the price of these lights? Are you sure you want them? Without hesitation, absolutely get them. That's what it looks like at night. <laughs> it's beautiful. So, unfortunately, my daughter's bedroom faces the flag. And she doesn't have room darkening shades. So I teased Brooklyn, how is her new light, night light doing? She told my wife the other day, and I quote, Mom, Dad has new pronouns. They're U-S-A. <laughs> so when it comes to the flag, right, I am a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I follow the letter to the law. It's a letter. The religious leader, in the same way, sees Jesus heal on the Sabbath. And his righteous anger burns. It's like putting a flag up without a light. All of you that have flags without lights are going to go home and get one right now. (laughs) However, this religious leader knows what Jesus has done, right? He doesn't dare challenge Jesus because he knows he's going to be bested. Does he chastise the woman? No, she's done nothing wrong. She didn't ask for healing. So he's trying to struggle. How do I do this? Because this righteous anger is burning. He has to do something. He's uncomfortable. There's this tension. Then he figures it out. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. You see, the religious leader doesn't directly rebuke Jesus. He found a way around it. He's going to address the crowd and reaffirm. In the first part, right, there are six days on which work ought to be done. That's right. Come on those days. This is where he gets it wrong. And be healed and not on the Sabbath. Now, he kind of has a point here. Now, but on some level, right, he, he sees this perceived wrong. He's trying to uphold what he believes is right. And he kind of got to give him some credit. He, he knows he's going to give it best, but he stands up for what he believes is right anyways. If it means having to match with with Jesus. And so, but he does have a point if we're pragmatic about it, right? See, the Sabbath prevents you from walking and traveling a certain distance. So he knows Jesus and this woman will be there the day after the Sabbath. And so if Jesus would just wait several more hours, he could heal her then. The Sabbath we upheld, she'd be healed. It's a win-win. And that's where we turn to the third person of the story, Jesus Christ. And the Lord answered him. Jesus begins to speak. You almost kind of want to feel bad for this religious leader, right? You almost kind of think he probably winces, right? Here, here it comes. He knew it was coming it wouldn't be good. He stands up for what he believes is right. He's in the wrong, but he believes it's right. And Jesus sends him a rebuke. You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who's Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus has a sharp reply. The religious leader thought he made a good point, but Jesus points to his hypocrisy. Now, it's really easy to vilify this religious leader right away because Jesus sends him a rebuke. But just remember, Just because Jesus rebukes you doesn't make you the villain. 
We learned several weeks ago when Pastor Fred preached. Does David ever preach? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) When Pastor Fred preached about Martha, right? Jesus sent Martha a rebuke. Right? Martha wasn't a villain. We read later in Scripture that he rebukes Peter. And Jesus rebukes his own mother at some point. So just because Jesus rebukes this religious leader doesn't make him the villain. It's how the religious leader and how we respond to the rebuke that matters. What's noticing here is, you hypocrites. Jesus doesn't call the single religious leader a hypocrite because maybe he actually has good intentions and his heart's in the right place. He's just wrong. He calls out all the religious leaders because there are clearly hypocrites in the group and people that are there for the wrong reason. The religious leaders were addressed by Jesus, right? They circumvent Jesus and address the crowd. Jesus goes right for the source Religious leaders and shows who's right and proves who's in authority. It's Jesus, not the religious leaders. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water it? You see, what he's calling out is the hypocrisy. Right? You can loosen your animal on the Sabbath and allow it to drink and relieve its discomfort. There was no law that you had to fill the trough of water the day before. And so, right, Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. If it's okay to heal, to, to minimize discomfort for an animal, how much more a son or daughter of Abraham? He argues from the lesser to the greater. And again, this is not about being a woman because the same situation occurs in chapter 14 of Luke to a man. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bound? Now, a similar situation occurred to me uh, when I was an intern working in the ER. For those of you who don't know, uh, I deal with high-risk pregnancies. Uh, I did residency a long time ago, but one of the requirements was I had to do a month in the ER. I don't like ER work. It's not a passion of mine, and it was not a passion of mine, but I jumped through the hoop I had to. One evening in a very busy shift, a 21-year-old man came in at 3 o'clock in the morning with chest pain. And in working with him, getting up his history, I found out this chest pain was going on for three weeks. Rather mild. He had no other symptoms. He was pretty comfortable. I asked him, did you see your doctor about this? I don't have a doctor. Why did you come in now? Eh, I was up and I was sick of it. He took the ER, or the ambulance to the ER. Right? I was frustrated. I was a Christian at the time. My thought process should have been better, but I was, I was angry. As a physician, I'm to help others. I took the Hippocratic Oath. However, I can tell you, I was not empathetic one iota that night. I did my job, but there's no empathy, no compassion. Don't you know the rules? The ER are for people who are sick and really ill. And the religious leaders of the day were no different. Don't you know the rules, Jesus? Right? They knew the rules, and they had no compassion. And as my oath is to help others, their job as religious leaders were to point people to God. And their zeal in following the laws, many of them man-made, caused them to elevate the laws over God. 
And so the compassion that they lacked was shown by Jesus. And he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. After years of oppression by the religious leaders, Jesus points them to God, shows them God's compassion, and the people rejoice. Jesus brought healing and the truth to people who were oppressed not only by Rome, but the religious leaders of the day. So how do we take this passage and apply it to our lives? As David says, how do we go from their town to our town? And the first point is window living versus mirror living. You see, this passage points to the dangers all too well of being too proud or arrogant and being blinded to the truth, thinking we know the truth. We become like the Pharisees and become legalistic regarding the scriptures. And we may forget about compassion. Now, please be careful of this, right? I think there's are two, two boundaries. We can be too legalistic, which isn't good. But we also can be so compassionate that sin away, do whatever you want. God will forgive you. It's okay. And that's a dangerous place to be too. But sometimes I think we lean too legalistic and we need to forget and we forget about compassion. You see, once we become Christians, I hate to break the news to you, we don't immediately become perfect. (laughs) And even as we get further along in life, we still are not perfect. If they try to tell my kids, I'm pretty darn close though. (laughs) They point out my flaws every day. The Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives and hopefully every day we, we move down that pathway of what we call sanctification. That every day, every week, every year we become more like Christ. And we may have seen this figure before. If we look at A, that's the point where we become a Christian. And many of us are in different points of the line. And what, if we look at, like for example, D, we could sit here at, at D and say, wow, man, I wish I was further along. Why am I not like that other individual? Why am I not there yet? Now, likewise, we can look back and look at someone who's B and be like, I, how can they be doing that? Doesn't that, don't they know? We can be very legalistic and judgmental and look at others, look through the window instead of looking at the mirror at ourselves. And so, if you will, humor me on my analogy. So if I take my patriotism as a similar analogy, Right? I can look around at people who are maybe less patriotic than me, right? Because I fly the proper flagpole. It's the right height. It's the flag-to-pole ratio is the same. I know when to fly it at half-staff because there's an app for that. I have the right lights. There is. (laughs) Right? So I do it right. I follow the law. And I can look at someone else who's not. So I've been struggling if I should... I have a neighbor who has a flag up, and I was struggling if I should mention any names, and in efforts to make this individual maybe more patriotic, it's David Partosik's flag. <laughs> now, now, if we look at this flag, right, let's be honest, objectively assessing, not judging David, I'm just adjusting his flag, it's kind of ratty looking. There, there's a light on it that might show a little flicker at night, Uh, You can't fly it at half-staff. He's clearly not as patriotic as me. I don't know what his problem is. So if we look and put David on D for the line of 
sanctification, compare him to me. And I want to point out in the patriarch scale, this is not drawn to scale. I'm probably blocks that way. Um, but I, for references, I had to put it there. Now, if we drive through the city, Brooklyn, Oregon, Jeff, we see flags on the flagpoles, on telephone poles with no lights. Chaps my hide. But David at least has a light on his. He's making an attempt. So David is further along this patriotic sanctification. Right? And we joke about this, right? And it's funny, but the truth is we do this every day as Christians. We judge other people wondering why they're not further along as we are. Right? I can show compassion to David, show him where to order the best flag and, you know, come alongside him. Likewise, in our Christian walk, we may find ourselves further along than someone else. And that's one of our values here. Intentional apprenticeship. Coming alongside, helping someone, and finding someone further along helping you with compassion, not judgment. Don't look at the window and look out at other people, judging them, wondering why they're not further along. Look in the mirror and see what work God has to do in your life. And I'll admit, just even in preparing for this sermon, I was convicted that I am clearly not as far along as I thought I should be. Right, I read this passage, and immediately just the same passage I've read before, similar passages, right? How can the religious leaders be so stupid? How could they miss it by so much? Right, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I'm sitting here in my arrogance. How can they miss it? They got convicted. They focused on, they had the hard part and the latter part. That man was made for the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was made for man. And then I got convicted. What does upholding the Sabbath look like in 2023? And do I do that? And that's a whole other set of sermons. But I was convicted as I was preparing for this that, yeah, I got a long ways to go. When I look in the mirror, yeah. So we want to focus on mirror living not window living. The other point about this passage is, is really the sovereignty of God. You see, we want to look at, there's certain details that, that Luke gives us and certain details he left out. And why does he, why does he give us these specific details? Right? This, this woman who's suffering in, for 18 years. He describes this in such detail. 18 years. Think about that. From time from birth to graduation from high school. 18 years. Right? And Jesus knows everything is omnipotent and omnipresent, right? He knows it all. He was fully God and fully man. So likely a year or two after we read about Jesus in the temple when he was 12, this woman started suffering. And Jesus is living his life through his 20s. The woman is still suffering. Jesus starts his ministry. The woman is still suffering. 18 years later, finally Jesus meets her. This miracle would have been impressive had it been 10 years, had it been five, even one. But she was afflicted for 18 years. Makes me pause and marvel and, and be a little fearful at times, right? The fear of God at his sovereignty. This is a difficult topic, the sovereignty of God. 
It means that he is Lord over all creation. He exercises his rule. He's always in control. He will always be glorified. Now, I'm preparing for this sermon. Right before bedtime, my kids always want to talk deep spiritual issues. Uh, or with my friends lifting weights between sets. So our conversation turned towards this passage as I was preparing it, and I said, boy, Nathan, I, this sovereignty of God scares me, right? Because what that means is if God is going to be glorified by me losing my job, I'm going to lose my job. If God's going to be more glorified by me dying an early death, me eating right and working out isn't going to matter. If me being paralyzed tomorrow in a car accident is going to bring more glory to God, it's going to happen. That's not a fun topic to think about. The following Monday, I came home. My wife told me my six-year-old nephew was diagnosed with leukemia. We are not in control trust, right? I pray, God, be glorified with my very comfortable American life. Don't bother me too much, please. It's a selfish prayer. We talk about one of our values at Hillcrest, joy in Jesus. Not joy in our circumstances, not joy in my house, in my car, in my flag, in my kids, or my spouse. Joy in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I was wrestling with this. If Christ took everything away from me, we read about something similar in Job, right? If if everything was taken away from me, would I still have joy? See, this woman for 18 years suffered and suffered miserably. And how'd she respond? She was at the temple. Not for healing, but to worship God. I'm sure she prayed for healing often. And she was faithful and continued to worship. And we're all waiting for something, right? We're all wanting and waiting. Maybe like this woman, it's for healing. Maybe it's for a loved one to find Jesus. Maybe you're struggling with infertility and waiting for a child. My wife was up here several months ago, weeks ago, talking about our situation, waiting Four years for our daughter in China to come home. We're waiting. And God is sovereign. I heard a speaker recently say once, God is never in a hurry. But he's never late. Let me say that again. God is never in a hurry. But he's never late. The Israelites were captive in Egypt for 430 years. The Jewish people were waiting for 18 years. This woman who has faithfully followed God was worshiping on the Sabbath. Her prayers were answered. Jesus had compassion. She was healed. And how did she respond? Better than I might have. God, what took you so long? Right? No. All his adversaries put to shame and all the people rejoiced. She glorified God for healing her. God is sovereign. And too many times I find myself praying for God to relieve me of my circumstances. How many times when we go in our small groups and we ask for prayer requests, it's God, 
heal this person, fix that, make this go away. And those prayers aren't wrong. But maybe we should pray praying, God, use my circumstances as you will to grow me in this process. I'd love for my circumstances to go away. Don't get me wrong. Multiple things, right? Maybe it's for healing as this woman. Maybe for some of you, it's financially. And maybe God will provide and you'll find more trust in Jesus because he provided. But let me press in upon, right? If a year from now, you're the same financial plight, may your trust in Jesus still grow, regardless if you're in the same situation or not. Maybe some of you are struggling with a broken relationship. Someone's wronged you and you are owed apology. And you pray and maybe that person apologizes and you can trust in God. But also trust in God that he will change your heart and you can love that person even if they don't apologize. We're all struggling. If the worship team will come up. When difficulties arise, where is your joy found? Is it joy in Jesus? Are you suffering for days, weeks, months, years? 18 years, whether it's from health concerns, financial struggles, relationships, name it, you fill in the blank. Will you, like this woman, still be found worshiping our compassionate Savior, Jesus Christ, who's always in control and is sovereign over all? Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is a hard, hard text. If I'm frank, I want to be in control and I want to feel like my actions make a difference in what happens in my life. But the truth of the matter is, you know better. Whether it's suffering or not, let us all lean into you and know that you are sovereign, you are compassionate, and you know what's best for us. And we're struggling. Let us lean into those struggles and trust in you all the more. I thank you and praise you, Lord, that you are all-knowing, all-powerful, and so much more than us.